Um, I will start with um, Susanna, Electric Indigo, oh, yeah. joining us from um, uh, Vienna, oh. right? Yes, Because um, yes. uh, can I say that to people? It was your birthday yesterday, so belated yes, congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. Have you I recovered? Always, oh, yes, I have recovered. And um, I'm, I always, I'm always happy on my birthdays. <laughs> well, at least usually. And, uh, so, yeah, I feel good. And I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, you bet. Uh, good to have you. Um, uh, I don't think we've ever actually met in real life, did we? Not Maybe really. we've played on the same stage or something. I don't know. But uh, I think I saw you at Berkheim and somebody, like some, probably some mutual friend uh, said, oh, but this is Jochen. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. But... I don't know. The situation was not like me approaching you and saying, hi, yeah. <laughs> I'm an electric indigo. <laughs> yeah, I would so, have probably not even have seen you because I'm I'm the total, the worst person as it comes to uh, uh, being introduced to people during gigs. I mean, I'm yeah, usually... You, you were not playing. <laughs> oh, I wasn't sitting playing. at the bar. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. Well, then was I was just finished playing, or uh, I was about to play, I guess, because <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably in the zone still, or already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, good to meet you now, and uh, yes. good that you have recovered from um, your birthday party. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> also joining tonight is uh, Robert Henke. Uh, actually, also joining from Vienna today. Because you were <laughs> at the birthday party, I heard. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually joining right now from Susanna's kitchen. <laughs> so, so, so you're the, the tea boy tonight? Yeah. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> and, um, and we have Jamaica, uh, Jamaica Suk, from, uh, joining us from Berlin. Hello, Jamaica. Hello. Thanks for Hi. having me. Pretty good, thanks. How's everyone? Very good, very good. Slightly hangover. <laughs> <laughs> but recovered, just a little yeah. bit hangover. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I see all people, friends, and uh, uh, acquainted people joining in. Hello, everybody. Thanks for, for joining us. Um, yeah. So, what have you been up to, um, Jamaica? Well, I've been uh, juggling a few projects lately. Um, mm -hmm. I'm working on my own production. And I started working uh, with three different music companies. Okay. So doing a freelance freelance work. Okay. Um, and can you tell any anything about that or? Um... Um, sure. Yeah. So the first company is um, Attack from the UK. So mm -hmm. I am contributing some uh, tutorial based writing for them. So that's about all I can say for now. But um, I'm pretty excited because I'm, uh, I really look up to their platform. And um, I, I like checking out some of their tutorials online. Okay, tutorials. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a pretty hard job. <laughs> yes, actually, it's much more complicated than I thought it would be. Um, mm -hmm. It's much easier for me to sit in the studio and write music and kind of tune the world out. But um, writing a tutorial has to be um, written in a certain voice and it has to be um, 
uh, you have to speak to a general audience and make sure that you're covering all aspects of the creative process and the technical process. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it is challenging for me and um, I'm really excited for the opportunity and I hope to get better. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds good. Sounds, uh, sounds like fun. A challenge indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, um, before I, uh, uh, this afternoon I was checking, uh, not, I was doing, not really doing research, but I was just checking and I found that I missed, um, Robert's latest album, which I have been playing today. <laughs> now <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I found out about it too late, to be honest. And, uh, Do you still want a physical copy? Sorry? Do you want a physical copy? I still have a few promo CDs left over, so oh, no, we can that would be out afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that would, be, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I saw it on Bandcamp. It was sold out. So um, anyway, but uh, yeah, fantastic, fantastic album. And, and the thing is, um, yeah, I, I'm you know I'm getting nerdy straight away, but um, one of my favorite all-time favorite tracks is um, uh, Infinite Snow. That track you did, it's it's uh -huh. absolutely amazing. I actually played that in Berghain a few times. Um, and um, But there's this bass sound in there, which I also heard again on the new album, the same synth. You know what I'm, what I'm talking about? Actually, I'm not even sure, no. Um, I mean, oh. I, I know this, I know that uh, there's a, a, a melodic instrument, which is basically a, an arpeggiator running... Uh, unsynced and triggering notes from from tension but that's probably not what you're no i was I'm actually to. i'm actually talking about that really low bass that don't no 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 that that sound yeah hmm. i have <laughs> honestly i have no idea anymore how um <laughs> that's so funny that. That's always what happens when, when uh, I mean, we, we all, all, always get asked these things, you know, by audiences or people who want to know what were you using in that in that track, you know. And uh, I would say 90% of the time, <laughs> the people who made the track don't even know what you're talking about. Or um, if they do, they don't remember the, the, the synth or the sound source or whatever, which is quite funny. And yeah. that proves basically proves uh, how irrelevant it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't really matter how, you know, or where, where it comes from. It just sounds amazing, you know. I, I think that the, the one thing that, that I learned over the, the years discussing with people about my, my work is that the things I personally find important or significant might not be at all the things that other people find remarkable. True. Uh, so this is both true for my own perceived flaws uh, in my compositions, in my production, or for what people like. Uh, sometimes people refer to a specific sound, for instance, that the sound is so gorgeous. And I think, what sound? Like, mm. like this example here. And then there's other things where I spend a lot of time crafting something and being super, super proud about it and think everyone must love it. And there's zero <laughs> feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's funny that um, sometimes the things you, sp you spend most time uh, at uh, or, or uh, like you said, you're crafting something uh, f f to make it work and uh, you spend a lot of time on it and you have a great sense of achievement. It might be completely relevant to, to somebody else. Um, but yeah, how is that for you, uh, uh, Susanna? I can call you Susanna, right? Not Absolutely, that. of yeah, course. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah. Don't have to call me Indigo. <laughs> yeah, or Indigo. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you prefer. Yeah. <laughs> no, Susanna is absolutely fine. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, the most important thing about gear is that, or, or devices, is that they make me want to play around with, it, with them, you know? Uh, it's, and then, of course, of course, the sound is important but because it, it gives feedback and motivation and uh, all that. But, um, yeah, the, the handling is, is, is crucial for me, like the interface and uh, some, some sort of personal relation helps a lot. For example, my favorite synthesizer and my favorite device is, is Robert's granulator. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I love that, by the way. Yeah. It's really cool. It's like addictive. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't know how not to love it because it's a, it's a very powerful tool and it always gives you something nice. <laughs> exactly. It's true for most, most granular synthesis tools, by the way. It's like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always lush. What, what comes out of uh, what comes out of it? Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are and a lot of uh, other fans uh, of the of uh, granulator. Oh, certainly, certainly. But for me, it's it's even more special, naturally, since uh, you know uh, I have a personal relationship with Robert, so that makes it really nice to to use this uh, the synthesizer even nicer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I hear a lot of uh, granular stuff going on in your in your music. Have you always been uh, a fan of of that synthesis method? No, not at all. I I was not really aware of it. I did not get any like formal education for sound synthesis at all. So I'm I'm like total uh, totally autodidactic. Is that the way you pronounce it? Um, and it came, I started to work like consciously with granular synthesis uh, when I started to have like more conceptual approaches to works. So uh, in particular, there was one uh, where I wanted to make like a long piece of music, 35 minutes, only out of recordings of people counting from zero to 20 <laughs> in their mother tongues. And to make music out of this, and I think it, it, it just, yeah, I don't know, uh, it, it's, it's very like uh, natural to come to granular synthesis when you want to do a project like this. Mm. Yeah, and that was about, uh, yeah, 10, 10 years ago or a bit less. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think my first. Um acquaintance with it was with uh, Max MSP. There was this uh, thing called Granular 2.0, which was is a free download. I'm sure I'm sure uh, you know it. Um, and um, yeah, I kind of noticed noticed thing inside out and I even modified the patch um, a few times for for different projects. Um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, it, it blew my mind when I first discovered it. <laughs> now there are much better tools out there, you know, for for granular. But um, um, that when you first uh, get acquainted with it, it's uh, pretty um, shocking what you what you can do with it. Extract, uh, you know, the essence of, of sounds, or uh, yeah, if there's there's a, there's a sh 
uh, yeah, a huge range of possibilities. And I've went on to to use more advanced um, granular synthesis. So for example, I've I've used the uh, I've I've got the Kima system, you know, which uh -huh. which does an an absolutely phenomenal job uh, sonically on uh, on uh, granular synthesis synthesis. Uh, because I remember back in the day when when the first uh, DSP tools were coming out and uh, computers were really you know just up to the task of, of actually doing this you know processing all the all the inf all the data and uh, especially with granular things could become very glitchy very quickly you know and uh, at that time if you wanted to do pretty complex granular synthesis you needed you actually needed a system like Kima that did the calculation outside of the computer basically. Um, and uh, yeah, to be honest, I think I, st I still think Kima sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, mm. you know, it sounds almost analog, you know, so clear and, and with a lot of body and um, definition. It's it's awesome. I just don't get along with the user interface. Um. I know it's it, it's hard. I mean, yeah, if you just use it for sound design, um, um, I've basically. Uh, got most out of the patches that allow you to uh, to use a lemur as a as a controller, um, and that way it's it's quite playable. Uh, mm -hmm. But build, building your own patches is uh, yeah, it's a bit of a thing I think. But the, the library the, that comes with uh, the machine is enormous, and there's also people sharing stuff and everything. So it's uh, before you actually get to the point where you need to build something because it doesn't exist you you can spend a few years without uh, without having to go through through that trouble uh, uh, at all um so uh and i don't know i mean you you are obviously very uh, uh technical and uh, you have this uh, that background but uh, i don't and i just want to make good, good sounds you know i don't i, I, don't. I think I, I think that the kuma is a good example how my technical background uh, can be in the way um, oh yes yeah. <laughs> yeah because um i i once i don't know maybe maybe 15 years ago bought one because i thought i need a kuma and i just had um the luxury that i could afford it at this time so i thought yeah i'm buying the kuma i'm Mm -hmm. I have the coolest system on the planet. And since my approach was always, I start from scratch, uh, I tried to get along with the user interface and the, the specifics of its programming language. And um, well, me and the Kuma just didn't become friends that way. Right. And mm -hmm. after, after two, and I, uh, there's no doubt that I love how it sounds. I, I just couldn't, communicate with the machine the way I, I want to. Mm -hmm. And as, as this program, programming engineering type, it bothered me so much that um, I considered selling it. And uh, next to the gym where I used to go, a, uh, a film scoring and post-production facility just opened. And at some point after the gym, I just walked by this facility and I saw some dudes in, in black T-shirts uh, standing outside having a cigarette. Mm -hmm. I just approached them and said, hey, guys, do you want to buy a Kima? It's a great first line if, if you meet somebody <laughs> for the first time ever. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and, uh, they, they looked at me like, what? And then yeah. one of them said, uh, yeah, yeah, actually, we want. <laughs> So, <laughs> two hours later, I sold my Kuma. Um, that was the end of my Kuma story. 
<laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Brilliant Pima dealer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So did you did you so you had the the capybara then the uh, the yeah. big nineteen inch unit thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I, I I got it uh, when when the first uh, pacas came out, the pacarana. So mm -hmm. the yeah. uh, it was way more affordable uh, because of I that. I think I should I should give it probably a try again at some point because. Um, I mean, I know, I know what you're saying. You know, it's I I don't have that uh, that brain at all. You know, I mean, I can I can modify patches and I can I, I can screw around. You know, but I uh, like you starting from scratch is not for me. You know, that's not the type of brain I have. I I'm way too impatient for that, and I I just want to, uh, you know, touch something and and interact with it and and get sound that way. You know, rather than coming up with, uh, you know, spending way too much time on on stuff that doesn't make sound <laughs> uh, anyway but um uh yeah it's uh I, I i was lucky to have some friends who are very uh very good in programming kima so they they built some patches for me that were uh, uh, uh totally custom ideas basically so i came up with the system mm -hmm. but i didn't build it you know uh which was which is great how can you, I mean, I've never worked with Kima, so uh, how can you integrate it in your studio setup? Um, is it like, does it, is it like a standalone synthesizer with like a, a keyboard interface or is it something that runs on your computer? Well, these days the, the, the Pacaranas are basically uh, just the DSP processing boxes mm -hmm. and um, you communicate with it through your computer, so you connect it to a computer for, uh, and then you get a, a reactor or max MSP type environment, you know, like mm -hmm. a object oriented uh, programming, and uh, and then you you can basically uh, make it talk with everything through uh, the patches. So you can have like MIDI interface or uh, motion sensors or keyboards or. Um, external sequencers, whatever you want, you know, it yeah. just depends on what kind of patch you're trying to control. But it's very, it basically talks to everything, you know, everything you want in, in if you, it's also used by uh, performance artists, you know, and it's used for installations, you know, where things have to, sound has to kind of change when people move around or, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff that is, that's what it's built for. Hero, he Hiroko is here. Hello. <laughs> is there a way to run a capybara now? I think I don't know. You know that, Robert? Um, actually, I don't know. Um, I, I assume you might need to have an older Mac, indeed. Yeah. 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 I think so. Probably the, the answer. Yeah. Do you have okay. any uh, um, experience with with um, DSP program? Things like Kima or uh, um, stuff like that, uh, Jamaica, or are you more a hardware um, hands-on person? Um, no, I have no experience with that. Um, but I am using a lot of hardware in my studio, and I actually prefer um, doing the creative process with hardware and then mixing everything down in the box. But um, since I'm working more with um, writing tutorials and also I will be shooting more video for this, I have been um, getting more acquainted in the box again. 
and just re-familiarizing myself with a lot of different things and making sure that I have all of the technical um, words correct. So um, it's pretty, it's been um, a process and it makes me realize how much I love just plugging in hardware and using that. Yeah, is that is that your process? You you may basically you build a setup and then you multi-track it to use the the computer as a as a tape machine. Basically, is that is that your your process? I I like to change my process because I'm a type of person who gets bored of this doing the same thing all the time. So, <laughs> I um I have done it like this, and I've also used a module um, by Expert Sleepers called the ES9, where you have uh, sixteen ins and outs. So I can record my modules separately into different channels into Ableton and oh, yeah. then go in and try to get everything on the grid, which of course takes time. Um, unless you use um, like ADAT cables, then you get you can go from ADAT from the Expert Sleepers ES9 module to um, like the Fireface RME sound card. And then things are a little bit more tight, but um, Lately, I prefer just recording sounds individually. Mm. So that really helps me control everything. So why do you say you, you spend time to get stuff on the grid? You, you, you could use the computer as a master clock or you, do you do, don't you have a connection like a clock device or something? Or um, I do, but with, uh, when I use modular gear, it's not always um, like on, uh, on the Ableton grid if I'm using Ableton as a DAW. So if I want to later edit um, like the verse and chorus or duplicate things, it's um, it's not like 100% on. And that's that's how it is working with a lot of, I guess, working with hardware gear. Um, mm. for, for example, if I want to uh, use a layer from um, another kick that I've designed in the past, then I would want it to be on the grid, so. Um, so I do, I actually do a combination. I will use some, some in the box sounds, but, um, they were, um, mostly ones that I sculpted and created. So mm. I'm not using too many soft synths or other gear, but, um, that can change any day. Like I said, I like to mix it up. So. <laughs> mm. There's a question from, uh, Bauke. How do you use yeah. Kranger synthesis in a live setting? Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, have I, do. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there, there are several ways I, I do that. I usually have like quite a few granulators run in, in my live sets, and I just play MIDI clips. And uh, so that's one way. But there's another uh, tool that I would love to mention. I could even show it if you like. Um, it's an iPad app. It's called Borderlands Granular, and it's oh, yeah. really super cute. It's very hands-on because you have this cloud, uh, grain clouds, and they are cute, like uh, blue circles and, and white and red dots like popping up and uh, the audio waveform that is being granulated lies underneath and everything can move and you can record some uh, movements both of the brain clouds and of the parameters and of the audio waveforms and uh, I 
pretty much like so for for some years I've been always like using uh, a borderlands granular during live sets um, for example for intros of tracks or just to create some atmosphere and I love to combine this with like one of the few hardware pieces that I take for uh, playing live. It's an even tight stomp box. It's uh, the Space Echo um, or Space Reverb. And uh, I love to combine these two, like the very digital iPad app uh, sound with with uh, with the hardware not twiddling <laughs> of, uh, of the of the stomp box. Yeah. So yeah, that's granular and reverb. That's that's a recipe for hours and hours and hours of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I saw this um, uh, granular. There actually there are quite a few really good iPad apps that do granular, um, but the one you mentioned is uh, uh, is particularly um, uh, nice as it comes to uh, the interface. It's really it's really I cool. I think so. Yeah. I think it makes just perfect use of, of the possibilities of, of an iPad, of, an, of a tablet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I mean, I have never done it, but um, if I would uh, use granular in a live situation, I would definitely try to use an input method, which is uh, motion based, you know, or uh, yeah. something. Some, I mean, if there's one type of synthesis that is really. Uh, it benefits really from from like motion input. It it is granular synthesis. I think that that is very they they are very good companions. You know. Um, did you use uh, granular synthesis and the combination with the reverb pedal in your recent live performance, Susanna? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I did. Um, cool. Yeah. With with like. Pretty much all the live performances I did in the past, uh, maybe four years or so, or three years. Yeah. So when you play live, is it all completely improvised, or or are you uh, using stems, or, or how, how do you? What is your process? I actually prefer not to use stems um, because I I want to be like more flexible with the length of the elements and I always like the decays of sounds and therefore with stems I feel more limited um, when it comes to changing the lengths of, of uh, parts of the tracks. Uh, so yeah, I usually have like a rather complicated setup or not so complicated <laughs> but a CPU expensive setup of synthesizers and, and, and MIDI clips and, and routing options and um, yeah so that's usually what I do and I like to do multi-channel concerts as well so oh nice it's a lot of there's a lot of routing and um, the, the scenes are usually prepared, but then I have a lot of options to interact with it and to add some layers to it that are that are improvised. Right. So, and what? what how do you do input uh, the data? Is it, do you have some fader boxes or um, what do you use to? Uh, I, I to actually play yeah. the instrument. Yeah, I carry like uh, quite a few MIDI controllers, uh, some some. Uh, 
data boxes like uh, the launch control, uh, innovation launch control, and I carry the push tool with me. Uh, for I play with live, uh, Ableton Live, and uh, two more like um, the little nano cords, which which I love for the for uh, volumes and uh, effect sense and stuff. And that's about it. <laughs> All travel size equipment. Yes. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, I, um, I was uh, uh, wondering about that because um, if you, um, yeah, if you do a lot of stuff with uh, that is basically coming from the computer in the box, uh, yeah, you you need you need some type of uh, way to interact with it, you know. Um, okay. So. Uh, um, yeah, I was. I had another question which I forgot. Uh, anyway, let's go to the uh, ah. Our f Spanish friend is here, uh, Miguel Tadeo. Uh, question for <laughs> oh yeah for uh, <laughs> Indigo, Robert, and Jamaica. Uh, do you know a gentle interface software for audio morphing? The, a gentle interface. The, 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 the question would be, what is what is the define audio morphing? I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. For for all sounds or for vocals or I guess it's more of a general general question. I think right. Miguel looking for an audio morphing uh, the thing you know device and <laughs> is uh, trying to hope to, hoping to get some tips here. Um, I don't know. To be honest, the only real morphing I know about is is again is Kima. Um, it actually morphs. It, it the way it works is that it uh, it makes a an impression of the sound by turning it into um, um, a bunch of sine waves uh, like a FFT. Um, filtering and uh, so the sound is is when it's played back it's not actually the sound but it's like a, a 1024 sine waves recreating that sound and uh, if you do that if you have two sounds like that or even more you can you can blend them really easily because every band can be manipulated individually uh, that is that would I think be real morphing but uh, other other than that um, if you combine sounds without that technique I don't think it's possible then you were just blending I think um, there, there's, there's, there's a few theoretical options, but the problem with those things is very often you have this this philosophical idea how great would it be if, if sound X morphs into sound Y, and then you try it, even with the with the method Kima is using, and most of the time what is happening in the middle between the two sounds um, is not really that interesting. Mm. Uh, so it's more a, a question of how we perceive sound. What I'm personally hoping for uh, is that artificial intelligence and neural nets in the future mm -hmm. will allow us to do things that are far more interesting in this re regard. Uh, because you can just say, this is sounds that I'm interested in, and this is sounds I have. Um, and I, I teach the system to, to find interesting cross points in the middle. Uh, so I say, here's my, my bass drum and here's my tubular bell. And here is a sound in the middle that I believe is, should be in the middle. And then I get an interesting curve between those sounds. Uh, 
based on just training the system with a lot of sounds that I like. Um, Actually, we, we, in a previous episode with uh, Richard Devine, we were talking about this, and he said that that is already implemented in some of the newer Yamaha synths. Um, so it's, it's coming, can, yeah. Yeah, so you can make it generate a range of sounds, and you, you pick your favorite, and then it it makes another ten variations from there, and so forth. And so, so you're kind of zooming in, in in into sound without actually touching a parameter. You're just making choices and telling the computer what to do you know it's sort of the same i i, I think this is going to be super interesting because it really uh it allows people to to design sounds like people who want to make music to design sounds um that are very personal and very deep uh without the necessity that they need to learn synthesis methods mm -hmm. and uh you could you could argue that from a from a perspective of the last century uh, okay, if you want to do electronic music, you have to learn synthesis. So if you want to have a certain type of inharmonic metallic sounds, well, learn FM synthesis. Mm. But um, you wouldn't argue that anyone using a laptop to do a Skype call has to be able to program the Skype application anymore. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> so um, I, I don't see an issue with uh, saying at some point synthesis becomes extremely complex and no human being is able to understand how the synthesis works technically, but it's not necessary because there's an interface on top of it, which just allows me to say, I want to have this sound more green and the yeah. other sound a little bit longer. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Then it becomes a matter of uh, um, how you uh, categorize um, the, 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 the qualities of the sound, you know. I mean, we we all can agree what what is more bassy or what is more bright, but uh, how, how do you tell, you know, the machine to be for something to be more woody or um, metallic? You know, I don't know. It's a uh, you probably still have to work with some type of selection process, you know, with. Uh, oh, and that, that's going to happen, but the idea is probably exactly what um, what is already in, in in some products the case where you have a graphic representation, like a cloud of, of sounds, mm. and um, you just navigate through this cloud and say, okay, this is interesting. Uh, here it goes in a direction that I don't like. Uh, if I go further to the left, there's something here that, that sounds good. Um, actually, I'd like to have a sound that is somehow further extreme than what I have, and then some smart algorithm uh, adjusts the parameters in such a way that I, I go there. Right, and um, then the only thing you have to do is you have to to basically label this for yourself and say this is my personal woody sound. Right, right, and, yeah. But don't you uh, think? Don't you think you need you actually need uh, an understanding of uh, traditional synthesis to even uh, be able to imagine what is beyond the the current parameters? You know. Um, you know, we, you know, people like us here, you know, we, we kind of, uh, have the, the idea of, of, uh, the, the range that sound can be in, you know, but somebody who doesn't, uh, know anything about synthesis and is just basically doing everything on intuition might not even know where, how far sound can go. You know what I mean? True. Yeah. Well, or I, the I, other I, way around. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe uh, the the people who are very well educated and know the limits cannot imagine to go somewhere that is mm -hmm. impossible true. to do. 
Yeah, that's true as well. Yeah, and of course, there's nothing wrong with uh, using intuition. I mean, that's basically what m creates great music. You know, p stuff that is where there's no uh, technical hurdles between the the musician and and their gear. You know, if if it's it's pretty much direct and and intuitive, it's is usually the uh, the most uh, true way of uh, expressing. But I think what Susanne said is, is, is strongly resonating with me because I have this formal sound engineering education. Um, so um, as much as I'm a, a self-taught composer, I'm a formally trained engineer. And as a result, since I have no clue, clue about composition, I do things the way I like it, which is fine. Um, but <clears throat> it took me years to overcome this uh, trained thing that you can never ever have the red LED on the mixer lit up because it's distorting. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, um, my, my knowledge certainly um, kept me from exploring the world uh, because now you don't do this. You don't create feedback with a mixer. This is just not how you use a mixer. Right, um, okay. And people have no clue. They use their MS-20 or whatever they have and they plug a cable in there and then I say, but this is two outputs. You can't plug a cable in two outputs. Yeah. And, but, but, and then this person says, well, listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm, yeah, good point. <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so. I think a lot of, especially the music we love and we do, uh, a lot of this came from, from breaking the rules. Exploration, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, think of the TB three hundred three. It was never built to make acid lines. <laughs> it's it's from from treating the knobs too much that, that the whole genre uh, that lasted for decades uh, came about. So, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of things in in electronic music. Uh, have uh, have uh, come about by people uh, uh, messing up, you know, uh, and, and that's <laughs> great. I mean, <laughs> turn your dogs into fingers, you know. Yeah. A, a happy mess up, a good day for a mistake, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we can. I mean, we we just ignore all the all the the mess up situations that left us frustrated at the end of the day, so we just don't remember those anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. No, but it's um, uh, you know I I'm really interested in 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 this uh, possible future you know of of uh, synthesis, but um, I mean the other way is you know, the the whole process of uh, like what Susanna was talking about in the beginning, having a, a relationship with your instrument uh, and really. Uh, you know, getting along with something and after having the feeling that you that you kind of are in control, uh, you know that it it is there's something to say for that as well. You know, like uh, um, it's half the fun. You know, the exploration mm. is, is is half the fun. You know, if if I would have um, uh, only not only, but if 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 there was a synth that would would basically do this for me, uh, make the sounds for me, and make these decisions, I would be very intrigued by it. From from you know. Uh, to see how you can still develop a relationship with that kind of instrument, um, but I, um, yeah, I, I also just really, really like love the process of sculpting things and just trying to understand them or uh, getting 
getting sound out of something, you know, in, in general. I, I think yeah. there is this, this really, really nice um, interaction <laughs> with, with you and your in instruments. Um, <laughs> Yes, Sergio is a former guest and uh, he just made the comment, uh, you know, the more technical knowledge I have, the worse my music is, you know, which is, <laughs> that's a funny one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, what I really like on, on, on hardware is in fact the limitations. And maybe that's a that's a, a also a key point to creation that I come more and more aware of, uh, and exploring in my projects. That if I have a synthesizer which does exactly one thing, and I have these ten or fifteen or twenty knobs on it, uh, and I tweak it because I'm generally liking what this machine is doing, uh, it just happens that I am happy about the fact that I know exactly what each knob does, and yet at the same time. Um, it, it serves me perfectly fine as a tool for artistic expression because everything is so, so known, it's so familiar. Uh, and yet I can put my momentary feeling in it and create something that is awesome because today I want the sound really sharp and a really sharp attack and I just turn this one knob and I know the attack is at zero and I know exactly how it sounds and I want this and I close the filter and I get what I anticipate and it does that. And whilst this is happening, I can play some notes and it all makes sense because I feel at home there mm -hmm. and I can just let my musical spirit wander um, because I'm not inhibited by, um, I need to dive into that parameter space, et cetera, et cetera. So there is something to say about the deep knowledge of an instrument. But, uh, so there's room for all these kind of things. You, yeah, I yeah. guess you need these instruments that are creating mayhem and you record it and say, oh, awesome. I have no idea what's going on, but I like it. <laughs> um, but it's also good if you want to just have a hi-hat that you're not ending up with something that is not a hi-hat. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, how, how do you deal with that, uh, Jamaica? Because you work with the modular quite a bit. Do you... Uh, Encourage yourself to get lost in uh, in 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 the, the mayhem of, uh, of modular and and just see where you end up, or do you have plans and are you are you really sort of scientific about it? Um, well, that's a good question because I feel like with modular, that's um, something that you can explore your whole life, and even if you have one setup, there's um, so many endless possibilities that you probably haven't um, uh, tried. So for me, in the beginning, I was, um, I was uh, do, um, approaching it with more trial and error. And then um, within the last like uh, eight months, I have um, my two setups and I know how to get certain sounds out of them, which make me happy. So I can go turn it on and play something that sounds kind of cool and then tweak it a bit and that's really exciting, but um, uh, it's something that will constantly change. And I think for a lot, a lot of other people who use modules and work with modular synthesis, um, they find that they're constantly buying and selling stuff like on eBay, Kleinenzeigen or, or wherever, uh, which is also really fun. It's kind of addicting. But um, there was a certain point in time where I just put uh, specific modules in one case and I was preparing for a show 
And I've actually kept them like that since um, since that show. And that's really helped me a lot. So I, um, when I arrived to the studio, it's already cabled. And like I said, I know how some things will sound good, but then I, I can still explore about um, 30% of my process. And if nothing's sounding good that day, then I will go to an instrument I know, like a synthesizer, and um, just play so I can have some kind of like therapy and inspiration. And I know what, what each knob's doing, like you said, Robert, like I know this, this is going, the cutoff's going to sound like this and the attack decay, everything, so forth. Um, but if that's also not working, then I will just pick up a stringed instrument. Um, I played the bass guitar for about over 10 years and that I know I can pick up and I know how it sounds, so. If it's just one of those days in the studio where nothing sounds good, I'll go to that. Hmm. <laughs> Which it happens. I mean, one day I go in and everything sounds amazing. I record a track. I love it. And then the next day I go in and I don't know, some, some things are not working. But I think this is said um, for, for, for the creative process. This is something that can be said for that. Um, I, I'm not sure how it is for everyone else here, but that's how I how it is for me in my process. I 100% relate to that. <laughs> Especially this one day, just nothing sounds right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like you listen to your own music, half-finished tracks, and one day you think it's complete crap, and then you dismiss it, and half a year later you just stumble across it randomly, and I think, why didn't I continue working on that? Mm. Um, so it's so subjective. Uh, it's really strange. Yeah, it also yeah. it also makes the moment where you where you have to decide whether something is finished or not uh, also uh, uh, interesting because um, I guess we all also all know the feeling of listening back to something and you know you instantly think, oh, this I would have done this totally in 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 another way. You know, today I had the same. If I was doing the same thing, you know what I mean. So, so basically, it, it's like, uh, yeah, you can. It, I'm not. I'm not listening back to old stuff uh, often at all. But I, I, yeah, like you, you stumble up, upon something sometimes, and and uh, you think, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's me. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was sitting on my ears like the whole time. <laughs> but uh, I, therefore, I'm, I feel like, and this only happened to me once, uh, it is such a privilege and such a great opportunity if you can develop a work, let's say like a, an, a, an album or like a coherent, like longer piece of several uh, tracks uh, if you can develop a, a tr uh, such a longer work during several live concerts like when you're able to play the material and, and have like multiple iterations and you further and further develop and you get a, a better idea about what, what this material is really about and, mm -hmm. and how you want to find something that comes close to a final form for it. <laughs> and uh, it, it happened, unfortunately, it happened like a lot of times that I 
played like some composition or some work once and then it was never recorded really and it was never performed again and that was it yeah like, of course that informed some other works but uh yeah it's a huge privilege if you're able to to hear your music in different rooms and on different pas and in different ways how you play it and in different stages of the development so is that is that what you're saying? You're basically saying you 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 take the music on on the road to rehearse it and to get to know it before you yeah. actually make the final uh, yeah. recording of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And do you yeah? So do you um, compare the, the 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 audio recordings of everything, or is it just you getting to know the material more intimately uh, and and just feel comfortable with with uh, with the material uh, exactly before you record it? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I get a better idea about the possibilities where it can go and what can be explored further. And uh, yeah, of course, you need like a more experimental concert setting for that. You cannot do this with like I don't know a big entertainment show probably. But uh, for me, that's a that's a great way to explore my own music and develop my own music. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, usually it's the other way around, you know. the the traditional <laughs> The traditional band way would be uh, record your album, uh, uh, sign it to a label, and uh, and two years after you make that work, you you have to go on tour with uh, with two year old music, you know, uh, which is boring. <laughs> By the time you are absolutely it's... sick of what you <laughs> what you've done, but that used to be the the, the standard way of uh, of promoting records or to or to tour you know you tour with an album but i've also done it the other way around we've had some guests here before um who's, who also came to the same same conclusion why don't you just uh, write your music while you are touring with it and then uh, when you when you've rehearsed it a few times and and it found its final form you can commit it to uh, to a recording and then you you have sort of like the yeah the ultimate version or the the it, a version that sort of defines the track the best way it can be uh, yeah anyway that's good do, do you do that um, jamaica record your shows and um, and get tracks from there or do you write them in the studio and then tour with them um i mostly write them in the studio and then tour with them but there's um about um I don't know, maybe 30% of tracks that I'll uh, test out when I'm playing a show that are unreleased. And some of them are not um, all the way developed. And it is nice to get some feedback and just see how it feels like on a different sound system or with, mm -hmm. with other people listening instead of myself. That's also nice. But um, this, um, this more like live raw approach, I find that really fascinating. And um, yeah, I could experiment with that more. I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah because we, there, there, something happens with with your decisions when when uh, things are live or or in real time. You know, you tend to make more intu intuitive um, decisions when you when you play something live. Uh, um, you know, rather than. You know, in the situation where in in the studio you can loop things forever and you know tweak the minor, the tiny details and and stuff like that. But if you have to perform it uh, and and structure the whole thing in real time, you get a sense of urgency because it's now and or now and ever. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, uh, actually, I answered the question for a DJ set, but for um, 
Like for a DJ set, I thought you meant to um, play some of your unreleased oh, set okay. music. So, so that's where I'm coming from. But for um, performing a live set, when I'm since I'm using modular gear, it's almost impossible for me to play the same set that I rehearsed in the studio. Mm. So yeah, that is that is live, um, and yeah. it's really, really scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, life, playing yeah. life should be scary if it's not scary it's not going to sound as good. Yeah. 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 you know yeah there should always be a, a, an element of danger in in uh, playing live you know if, if everything is too prepared and too much uh, uh fixed you know uh it's going to sound boring and if, I, I think this yeah i i i just wanted to, to completely agree with that the, the most uninspiring concerts i have experiencing in the past were the ones where everything was perfect and at the end you leave the concert and you think hmm waste of money well yeah <laughs> it was really really strange uh, i i don't tell what i have which ones i have in mind but there was a, a few really um big more on the on the on the commercial pop side uh, of things concerts where Everything was so insanely well done that I felt I was listening to a CD. No. And um, I didn't feel any interaction between the, the people performing and the audience and the specific situation. It could have been uh, in outer space without any audience. And the, the concerts which I found most remarkable were the ones where <clears throat> things were always on the edge between breaking and yeah. being genius. Yeah, yeah, and there I go home, and I just want to go in the studio and do something that is in between breaking and being genius. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> no, true. It's uh, it's the element of uh, of danger that that uh, that makes it exciting because um, for the for the audience, they can see that somebody is really opening up and doing something uh, that can go wrong, and it's more intimate because of that and more personal. Um, and for the performer, for for the performer themselves, it's uh, often a way to uh, to get really fired up and to be sharp and to to really sort of focus on the on the moment. Um, you know, instead of uh, if you have too much time and things are just running automatically and everything is just uh, sounding nice and perfect, you become lazy. You know, if if, if <laughs> work, yeah, if you would need to work a bit harder and then uh, to get the the point across uh, and it can also go wrong um that is just an uh, an excitement you only find in in live performances right. oh, by by the way live performances i wanted to mention that uh, jamaica recently did like a mess such a massive live set for a uh, female pressure room at at this virtual club called common and i don't know if if you came across but uh uh, yeah. And I, want, I wanted to to ask you, Jamaica, if you whether you had planned that or if it was improvised fully or partly. And anyhow, like I suppose it was recorded in your studio, and I must say your studio is really impressive. With, with oh. all, all the hardware that you have and how you handle it, it was really super inspiring. Thank you again for doing this. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to join that. Yeah. It, um, there's something to be said about recording, I think, in your own environment and in your own studio, because I felt so comfortable um, 
recording this. It was live and I used a few stems from some tracks that I'm working on, but um, everything was live. I guess it was about 20% of stems and some of it turned into just like some jam. I mean, I planned to do maybe four songs in that mm -hmm. in a 30 minute setting. And I think it was about maybe three and a half, but um but yeah, I just um, recorded it in a whole take and before I was rehearsing and rehearsing. But for some reason, when I rehearse for a live, a live set, it just, it's just completely different when I actually do it. Once it is for real, once it, once it is for real, you forget everything and, and yeah. uh, just start over. <laughs> it's a totally different situation. You can never yeah. really plan for it. I mean, it, it's good that you and that you get uh, an idea of the range of the of the instruments that you you are using, so you can um, you can be fluid with it, you know. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's better just to to get that rehearsed, you know, like the the techno the, the the way your setup handles and the technical aspects of it, than the actual sound it's it's supposed to going to make, you know. Because that's just all down the drain. Once you press start in front of an audience, or when when the red the magic red light button comes on, <laughs> it, oh, yeah. uh, everything is everything um, is uh, is out of the window. Hey, we lost. Uh, we lost now. Yeah. I mean, you have to open the door. <laughs> <laughs> if he's not coming back, then I will take we go. figure <laughs> it out. Hey, hey, you, tra you traded places. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, what happened? Um, Was there I a cat, a cat on your keyboard or something? No, no, no. Oh. oh. <laughs> um. No, I, I, I looked at the comments and then I must have swiped, so it went uh, back to like a yeah something. A gesture by mistake. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. At least we didn't actually lose your connection or something. No, no. Um, uh, yeah. What were we talking about? Oh, yes. Uh, we were talking about um, uh, rehearsing for for live shows. Um, yeah. So oh. the, ra the range the range of, of stuff of of your your setup um, uh, is the most important thing, I think, to uh, to get your head around before you um, go into a live situation. And how was that uh, for you, Robert, when you prepared for your live um, AV show? I think it was called CBM eight zero three two. Well, that's that's a that's a very different one for, for those who who are listening and have no idea. Um, that's a performance I do with um, five Commodore CBM eighty thirty two computers from nineteen eighty, and um, there is an enormous amount of information on my website about it. Uh, the, the the core is in order to to turn those computers into machines that can make sound and into machines that do video. Uh, me and the team of people had to program assembler for a long time, and it's a it's a kind of a crazy endeavor. But the the performance aspect uh, is that we have one computer is basically running a step sequencer we wrote. And I'm switching pattern um, and scenes uh, pretty much the same way you would do it in, in, in live with MIDI clips. And this computer sends out the equivalent to MIDI notes technically, which um, trigger sounds and triggers cues for the computer which is doing the video. 
so in, in that regard, there is not so much uh, freedom to actually do things on the fly, apart from the fact that, of course, I decide the timing, how long is a scene playing when I play the next scene. Um, the Are the, scene, of the scenes always in the same sequence? Um, yes and no. The, the, the pieces are in the same sequence, so I have a fixed order of the pieces. Um, within the pieces, um, I sometimes jump back and forth a few times. Right. Mm. Um, but what I also do is the, the sound comes from three computers because uh, out of necessity, one computer can just create one voice at a time. So if I want to have a little bit more complexity, I need to add um, three computers. And I also have a kind of super old 1980s pitch shifter delay line uh, in place and an old reverb. And so part of the performance is actually adjusting the, the parameters on the reverb and on the pitch shifter and do the mixing. And since everything there is based on hardware that is available in 1980, there is no such thing as total recall. <laughs> and, oh, wow. um, which which of course means that in between the pieces, I have a folder, like a physical folder on my desk. And for each piece, I, 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 um, I open a new page and there's the settings of the mixer, like really back in the days, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, Polaroids, Polaroids, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And of course, after two or three performances, you stop lit looking at this. So... Um, you do things on the fly and you don't care if you said the pitch shift needs to be one octave up, you just tune it by ear. And that means all kinds of happy accidents happen. And that also makes sure that each performance is different. And what I found most remarkable is how much tiny details can have an impact on the overall experience um, of things. Like you change tiny... Yeah, well, you, you change tiny details in the mix of uh, there's one computer which is doing a massive bass sound and another computer which is doing more melodic stuff. And uh, one day the, the crew with, I'm, with whom I'm traveling with these machines says, oh, I really loved how um, the melodic piece turned out tonight. And the only difference was really that the melodic part was slightly more reverberant and slightly more in the foreground. Or um, they comment on that it was really nice how pumping another one was um, because at this point I just had more focus on the on the low frequencies. Mm. Uh, I find this completely fascinating because after performing for such a long time, I still don't completely understand the the magic process of what makes things happen in one night like this and on another night like that. Yeah, that's that is something that is definitely uh, you call it magic. Yeah, but it's I, I think it's for the most part um, a matter of perception. But the perception of the audience and no, your own perception and, and, and the your your own perception. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, if you if you hear uh, sound in a room and it's it's a, a certain record or a certain I don't know something you 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 could play anywhere, you know. Uh, I mean, if you play a track in one room and, and you play it in the next room, it's, it can take on a completely other uh, um, personality or uh, yeah. character. Um, and then it's, 
it is uh, because these things are unpredictable. You know, how how is this track going to sound in this room? You have an idea about uh, what it should do, but there's always the element of surprise that you know uh, the the bass can sound much bigger in one one sp uh, space or you know in than in another. And um, it also depends on what's been playing before and what's what is playing being played after. You know how big the impact is of certain things. Yeah. Uh, you can never really 100% prepare for that. Um, so, and and it's um, why a track is going well in one occasion and the other, it doesn't have the same impact. Is a, a, a matter of all these things added up, you know, like uh, the acoustics and and also the energy in the room. And and if you're at the, at at some concert uh, with five people and they're all standing in different places in the room, they're all gonna have a, a, a different experience, you know, yeah. which. Yeah. So it's perception, I think. Uh, <laughs> there's no way, there's no science behind it. There's no way to, you know, eventually know about this. I think it's just all... Well, but it's, it's part of the beauty, of course. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because yeah. It's, it's also liberating, uh, if, if you look at it, like, from, from a perspective of a performer. Because wh whatever you do, some people will not like it. And whatever you do, some people will like it for reasons that are completely um, intransparent to yourself. So... Mm -hmm. Um, just do what you feel like, and that's the best thing you can come up with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's funny how sound works sometimes um, with uh, different acoustics and um, different environments. It's, uh, yeah, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> True, yeah. How, how do you deal with... Um, that Susanna, if you if you are mixing stuff live, are you letting uh, acoustics of the room and environment play a role in how you perform things? Certainly, I can't I can't help. What I do uh, all the time is uh, I do sound check and constantly run back and forth between the actual audience room and the stage, and I try to get a to understand how the, what I hear on stage translates to what people hear uh, that come visit a show yeah. or, or a concert. And, uh, but it's, it's not only the sound. The sound is super important and probably the most important factor. But it's also what I what I notice from the people who are listening or who are experiencing the concert. So when I get like a, a bored vibe or something or people leaving the room, uh, I become <laughs> nervous and, and uh, I, will, I will probably play a lot shorter and stuff like that. So there, there is a lot of feedback going on, even if I, I don't constantly observe the audience. I oh, yeah, the, the room energy. Notice and that reflects a lot, not as much as the actual acoustics and sound, but uh, it, it also like affects the way I play definitely mm. and yeah. how confident I feel and how long certain parts become and how short other parts become. So there's always this uh, flexibility to cater to a specific moment. Yeah. I think room acoustics are under, underestimated by by a, a, lo a lot of people. I mean, the, I always play with the acoustics uh, of every room because um, you know, a lot like when I when I start my set, I usually play with my monitors 
off or very low mm-hmm. um, just to to hear what the system is doing you know if you're if you're dropping some bass and uh, you I want to know what the impact on the other side is going to be you know yeah. uh, because sometimes sometimes you you end up at places where they have uh, some limiter going on or uh, there's some some lazy sound engineer uh, I don't know but uh, uh, anyway so so just to get a feel of what what the 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 pressure is and the, and the impact and, and yeah. I actually like the especially with with techno and stuff when when you get that big room rever- reverberation going on you know it just makes everything sound more fantastic you know <laughs> um, but it's um, uh, yeah it's a good way to familiarize yourself with uh, what the impact of uh, is of what you are doing you know uh, because you might be uh, thinking okay i'm now co- i'm going to do this and then this will happen and and if you don't see it happening there's obviously miscommunication between what you are hearing and what the audience is hearing yeah. so that i want to get that out of the way in the beginning <laughs> always you know yeah. um, and i just like the sound of hi hats like shh you know <laughs> <laughs> the warehouse You're sound. such a raver yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah like, just put reverb on everything, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. This reminds uh, me of a story. Do you remember Like a Tim who used yeah, to release yeah, yeah, on Jack's Up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I I heard uh, this this rumor, but that's a long like over twenty years ago, that Like a Tim never uses any reverb on his records when he records because he wants the the original reverb of the room where the record is being played. I think yeah, that's, that's a really great. It's such a great concept. concept. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think I think uh, it it sounds very like uh, something Tim might have said or mm-hmm. has been thinking. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny. I, I've I haven't I don't I haven't seen him for a while, but um, sh- should be uh, hooking up with him because uh, he's his my his music is so out there. It's incredible yeah. with his custom designed sleeves and everything. It's really cool. There was this, this uh, there was this question about um, open air and how to deal with yeah that one. Yeah. Um, so so I I personally love to perform open air because of the fact that there's no resonances in the bass. Yeah. And if you have a nice PA open air, um, you can do much more complicated things in the low frequencies that would not work in, a, in any normal room. Um, so there is something to, to perform open air over a big system. Uh, but there's also something about performing in a super reverberant space. So uh, I... <clears throat> I personally embrace both situations. Mm. Uh, yeah, your music is is uh, actually quite a lot about space. You you you're um, an acoustics. I mean, everything you do is uh, has a very. Uh, there there are always very de- definable zones in in terms of uh, space mm-hmm. and 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 rooms and and. Uh, yeah, you enter one space, you slide into another, and everything has its uh, position, and it's like almost like a three D world. I, I like that idea. Uh, yeah, um, but three D world. I like. That. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a cool description. Yeah, for your music, yeah. you I, I, I can sound design, and I hear a lot of layers in your production. Which, which, when it comes to performing live, is a, is a challenge because. Yeah. Um, my my usual task when I prefer when I prepare something for a performance is removing layers. 
because there's so much going on in a club with the reverberant space yeah. or in a concert situation that if I'm muting 50% of my tracks that are on my album, uh, it's still completely crowded with stuff. Mm. So the, the one experience I gain from performing live is that I take a few key elements of each track and I expose, expose them and I remove all the other aspects. And then I feel that I'm A, in control over things again, because it's just a few elements. And um, it's usually sounding just much more impressive. And, and everything on a, on a big sense system sounds more impressive. You know? <coughs> and you, the more you play, the more you realize how little uh, you actually need to, to get an impressive sound, you know? Uh, like, like the... The classic example would be, uh, you know, the stereo out of a 909 or an 808 straight onto the PA system. It sounds absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, this is actually, this is my, my problem with, with streamed concerts or with, with concepts like Boiler Room, etc. Um, the, the experiences I have when performing live, the most beautiful moments I have if I do something that is really silly mm. and works extremely well in a specific space but does not translate at all to people who are listening at home. Yeah. Uh, because of the like, lack, of, lack of impact, because of the, yeah, uh, yeah uh, because like, every, everything like, gets blown up to in, in, in cra crazy pro proportions, you know? So uh, you don't get that on a, on a screen or, or I, I, I mean, you, 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 in the middle of a track, I mute everything apart from a bass drum and I, I transpose this bass drum while it's playing wildly to play a, a mel melodic element and everyone's freaking out. Mm -hmm. So it does this nice doom, 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 and mm -hmm. you do this for five minutes, and everyone is raving, and yeah. you're listening. You're listening to the recording afterwards, and it just sounds like, "Duh, this this dude is noodling there for five minutes." <laughs> <laughs> Self-indulgent piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, um, two completely different experiences. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's totally true. Yeah, um, yeah. So the uh, yeah, very simple things can can go a long way. Uh, but how do you actually um, technically approach it? Do you have your multi outs uh, split over a desk or something? Is that where you mute it, or or do you do everything in inside the box? Um, basically, it's all a big live set, and it's a whole battery of uh, um, launch controls. Um, and a battery of old Dutfer faders. So it's just a ton of faders. It's in, in a way, it's the equivalent to the mixing desk. Yeah. Um, the, the reason why I do it like this is mainly because uh, for pragmatics uh, reasons, I can travel with this easily. Mm. And uh, the, 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 the launch control is such a common piece of equipment that if one breaks, I can yeah. go in the middle of nowhere uh, in South America to uh, a music store and I get a replacement. Yeah. And uh, that's, I found this quite practical. So I either do these, these concert types where I travel with a crew and 40 year old machines and everything has to be taken care of with extreme care. Or I do the sets where I know if a piece of equipment breaks, uh, I go to the shelf and pick another one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have to uh, to get to keep your show up rate uh, uh, high. You know, <laughs> you yeah. can't you can't uh, cancel gigs because of broken equipment. Yeah, smart idea. There is something to say though uh, of uh, doing uh, 
like old school hardware gigs with uh, actual mixing desks. You know, of course. I, 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 used, I used I do that. I do that here in with the uh, jams here, and, uh, and I did it in the past uh, in, on the stage. Uh, and indeed, it's a it's a, it's an absolute nightmare when traveling and setting up, and uh, you know you're always the first one in and the last one out <laughs> when you do that but uh, but it has a, a magic magic feeling you know just a, a massive desk you know go do stuff with uh, auxiliaries and eqs and dub style you know i love it you do things you wouldn't romantic do if you were... <laughs> sorry it's it's a romantic way of making music oh totally uh, um, <laughs> um, he there's the sight of a, of a big desk and all the LEDs flashing and you know, yeah. here's my bass drum. Yeah. I mean, uh, I remember back in the days before everyone had laptops, um, it was just normal that we all had our mixing desks on stage. Yeah. And I remember these, these beautiful club acts where um, back in the days when there was this kind of great build up before the bass drum came in. So you saw these people performing on stage and you see all the faders are up and there's this nice soundscape running. And channel one on the mixer, it's muted, but you see the green LED. You already know what's coming next. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and at some point, this, uh, this person is reaching to the mute button and you're already like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that got lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I see uh, a split Reddix checking in. Uh, question for Robert. Oh, uh, yeah, the monodeck. Yeah. Um, can you well, sorry? Can you explain to people what that is? Uh, yeah, I, I built a, a huge MIDI controller uh, because I wanted to have exactly this, this idea of performing with hardware with the computer. And this was before uh, Push was out and before the APC40 was out and all the other kinds of things. Um, and <clears throat> sometimes you need to be really naive if you do things um, because elsewise you wouldn't start it. So I thought I, I built a first version of it, which was a kind of cardboard box thing with a few knobs and uh, I used to perform with it and I liked it, but it was too limited. So I built a really big one, like the size of... Um, I don't know, a, a really big and heavy uh, with eight channels and EQs and everything. And with a, with a matrix to launch clips in Ableton Live, um, which at this time no one else had. And it was really fancy. And uh, I loved performing with it because it completely liberated me from the computer. Mm. And my idea at the beginning was not that I'm not looking at the screen anymore. My idea was just that I don't want to use the mouse. But I figured out that I'm getting so com uh, comfortable with my hardware environment that I don't even need to look at the screen anymore because I have some LEDs that show me which clips are running and that's sufficient for me to get an idea. And I performed with it for maybe five, six years. And uh, it was, uh, I would say, the peak time of my more club uh, type uh, gigs. And I had a lot of really, really nice moments with it. The only thing is, it's a, this was a one-of-its-kind piece of equipment. And my live show entirely depended on this piece of equipment working and being there. I couldn't perform it with a mouse anymore. It was impossible. Mm. Um, Does it exist somewhere? It, it exists in my living room and is collecting dust. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the reason why I gave up touring is that I became so scared 
about it breaking or about it getting lost. Mm. I carried it around in this big flight case. And, and it's super heavy. And it's super heavy, yeah. Um, how big is it? Um, how big is it? Um, <laughs> okay, bigger than the screen. Big. And just, it was 20, including the flight case, it was 20 kilograms or 22. So I figured out that I just have um, enough uh, luggage allowance on my plane that I can put a T-shirt and some underwear in the same flight case. <laughs> so my, my travel became quite restricted. Um, but I really stopped using it because I became too afraid of, of being too dependent. And then I went exactly the opposite direction to say, I'm using the cheapest possible commercial MIDI controllers instead. So that was yeah, my... The ones that you can uh, Twitter about and, uh, and five replacements show up in... Uh, in exactly, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Have you, have you got any good stories, uh, Susanna, about uh, uh, traveling and, and gear and things breaking down or are you lucky that never happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, think I never had any any troubles when doing live shows, but I don't I have not done as many live shows as DJ gigs. And there are a lot of weird stories with DJ equipment <laughs> uh, that that uh, were, was wrong or or broke or the most absurd story was uh, if you want to know that um, it yes, was. Please. Rave on snow in the 1990s, and uh, it was a, a really fun excursion, but a completely absurd event. Uh, it was one of the big raves, but in the Alpine region, actually in Austria, and I was yeah, there. I, I played there as well, <laughs> twice, I believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy. I was, I was there with Miss Kittin, Cassie, Eva Casal, Acid Maria, and myself and we had to play in the club that was completely empty and uh, Miss Kittin played Prince uh, when doves cry I think and the monitor fell on the decks and the party And it didn't matter because there was nobody in the club anyway, and it was kind of this country-style disco. Uh, so, yeah, stuff like that happens, and uh, of course, that's not very pleasant. <laughs> and other other stories just involve uh, technical stuff, and uh, like a recent one that was really not funny at all was in. <laughs> in Madrid and and they had the the power went off during the show uh, so like the light went off and the sound was off um, then it took them maybe 20 minutes to to get the fuse back in or something <laughs> and I continued to play and after the show the technical crew uh, chief He said it was my fault because my equipment is bad. And the equipment I had was a computer and a motor um, uh, audio interface. What, he so blamed you? Oh. He blamed me. What, yeah. oh. <laughs> What an amateur. <laughs> yeah. So you don't that, do that. 
<laughs> that was quite annoying. But, well, uh, one, one power outage can work wonders at, uh, at parties, though. Uh, yeah. But uh, a 20-minute one is a pretty long one. <laughs> it's a long one. And it was not really a party. It was a seated concert. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was actually a festival, a really nice festival uh, for, like, about women in electronic music. But the tech crew was all male. And they were really, like, hostile towards not only me, but also the other women <laughs> performing. And... Uh, insulting us that we don't know our shit, basically. Oh, that's bad. Yeah, yeah, that was bad. It was quite annoying. But that's totally exceptional, and usually it doesn't happen. Usually lucky with stuff like that. Right. I remember a funny story from, uh, it's an old one from the from the 90s. We, I was touring in the UK, and... Um, uh, you know, it was one of those old school, uh, one city every day type gig, you know, but really, really small, really small uh, uh, venues and really large ones, like everything mixed up, like a completely crazy, logistically nightmarish tour. But anyway, uh, ended up in uh, some uh, coastal uh, town in uh, somewhere after having, having played uh, Brixton Academy the day before, you know, so like a bigger contrast couldn't be there. <laughs> and we had our own light uh, installation built of uh, neon tubes and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so we, we we arrived at the, at, the, at the tiny venue, which had, by the way, on the door, uh, live music, comedians, DJs. <laughs> In that order. Yeah, yeah. And you came there as a comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to have a parallel, parallel career uh, if I would fail as a musician. No, <laughs> but anyway, no. So, so we arrived there and we started setting up our our, our gear, and then uh, they said, uh, uh, "Well, do you want to have uh, uh, fish and chips? Do you want it now?" And we said, "Well, now we'll we'll just set up the gear and we'll eat something later." You know, um, yes, but it's not possible to to have it uh, after the, when you finished. And we didn't quite understand what, what, what they're trying to say, but eventually it turned out that the the fryer was plugged into the same uh, wall uh, uh, connector as as the our backline, and it couldn't be uh, at the same time. <laughs> they only had one. <laughs> we, had to make a, we had to make a choice. Okay, do you want no food or do you want uh, <laughs> food now? You know, okay, well, it's like... These That's places nice. you run into sometimes, it's crazy. <laughs> so did you get did you get the food and eat before the show? Oh, and we have weren't everything hungry. in time. We, uh, we weren't hungry, you know, so we, we skipped the food. We just went on with the show. <laughs> we wanted to get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see if we have any people in the comments uh, with interesting. Another one for Robert. Yeah. Dangerous situations with labor. Oh yeah, yeah. We haven't oh, talked about your laser. laser. <laughs> well, that, that's an interesting question because um, so the, the, the whole point with these laser things is um, if you have a video projector, uh, you have all the brightness spread out over the whole projection surface. So if it's a it's a if it's a ten to ten meter square projection, then um, you can calculate how much of the energy you have. If the the projection hits your eye, it's just a tiny fraction of the overall intensity. Uh, if if you do laser shows, basically 
even if I draw a circle or a lot of stuff, it's always one single beam of light, which is just moving very fast. And as long as this beam of light is moving very fast, even if it hits your eye um, and the energy is below a certain level, the, the overall energy that happens over time is still small. So it's not a big deal. But the, the, the situation you want to avoid under any circumstances if, is that the laser beam is standing still. Because then the whole point of the laser beam is that the energy which comes out of the laser itself is more or less lossless transmitted to another point in the room. So if you stare into a laser beam, it's like the same as you put your eye in the middle of a light bulb <laughs> um, <laughs> where the energy just happens. And that's obviously something that's not very healthy. And that's so also have, you, have you cut off any people's hands or ears? By, uh, uh, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> there are some promoters where this could be an option, but <laughs> um, no. Um, the, the thing is, if the, if the laser beam is moving, so we're all good, but if it's standing still, there's also a fire hazard because um, on a black or dark surface, if the laser is running at full power, even over a distance of 10 meters or so, you could actually start burning it. And uh, I have this, <clears throat> uh, I have a lot of shapes where I draw circles that go smaller. And um, I, I change just, uh, and the, the timing is made in such a way that the shape is playing. So there's a sound coming and the, and the, the circle is getting smaller. And then the next shape is triggered. So before the circle becomes really small, another shape is triggered. And just before the show started at a nice old Roman theater somewhere in Italy, like a really like old wooden theater place, everything super woody and um, fragile and old, uh, I just changed a few timing constants to get one piece a little bit snappier. And I performed this piece of the circus and I just noted during the show that the circles shrink very fast. And then there's this one steady beam pointing at the center of the screen um, in this old wooden, non-fireproof theater place. <laughs> and I just thought at some point, fuck, this is not good. This is really not good. And I became really scared. And uh, I don't know anymore what I did. I think I, I, I manually muted the lasers in time during this piece whenever the, 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 the circuit became too small. So I was occupied 50% of the concert. Not yeah, actually not burning down the building. Yeah. <laughs> not, exactly, not burning down the building whilst pretending I have it, everything under control. Yeah. And after the show, my, my crew came to me, my, my, the, the guy I'm always traveling with and said, hey, Robert, what the heck went on with the lasers? There was just one single dot in the middle of the screen. Like, I know. <laughs> so that was a bit scary um but um yeah so how how does that work is it, is it because uh, uh audio and 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 video f visuals or laser are are uh, run by the same system i guess because there is a connection between um the two systems i <clears throat> when i when i started exploring this whole laser topic i i did the obvious um because which is for lasers that you, you use the signal to control the lasers also to create the sound. Yeah, like, like um, Edwin van der Heide's work. What Edwin does and what Robin yeah. Fox does. Yeah. And <clears throat> this creates this hyper-synchronicity, which is cool, but it also leads to a lot of open questions. 
So for instance, to draw a circle, you basically need, need a sine and a cosine wave. Um, so the amplitude of the sine wave is the size of the circle. So a large circle is louder than a small circle. Makes complete sense. Um, but um, if the frequency is 430 hertz or a different node looks exactly the same. So there are certain musical parameters that don't have an expression with the visual side. And I always, and two circles sound highly distorted and not like two nice sine waves uh, running. So I found that there's a conceptual mismatch between what I hear and what I see. Mm. And at this point, I decided that I need to decouple it. And I approached this in a way that I have a sequencer, which is just sending out events. And I assign for every visual shape, I assign a sound, just arbitrary. Um, just I look at the shape, it's kind of noisy and it's just decaying over time. So I add some noisy hi-hat. Mm. Um, and then the rest is just making sure that all these things are in sync. Yeah, okay. So there, it, it's, it's decoupled in a sense that it's not the, the same signals uh, used for both uh, media, but it is, it is still uh, connected. There's a, there's a semantic connection, but there's no technical connection in terms of the signals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you can you can make it uh, your emission to to have uh, the immediate connection and and just try to get the most out of it. You know, it's a, it's a cool thing. Like like indeed, like Edwin uh, his stuff. Yeah. Uh, but um, I always feel with um, a lot of uh, performances or installations where the audio and and the visuals are connected. Um, that there uh, is a danger of uh, making it too uh, apparent by and mm -hmm. therefore sort of removing the 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 option for people to use their imagination. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, for for the audience to in make their own interpretation. Um, it's more like a you know a fancy VU meter. Yes. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if some people would like to hear this, but I agree. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm, I'm just explaining it in a very, uh, um, yeah. Um, uh, it, it's not not that I'm dismissing uh, any shows that are built like that, but it, you know, I'm just more uh, into stuff which uh, which lets gives me room to uh, come up with my own story, you know, or my own in interpretation. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's, that it's bad, you know. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, of, of projects like this. Uh, but one, one, one thing I learned and I found really fascinating is, so I saw these, these shows where there was this extreme sync between audio and visual. Um, because when I started with my laser work, this was kind of the unvoke stuff to do. Uh, this brutal hardcore sync, you know, there's, a, there's a, a very percussive short sound and there's a visual flash. And uh, naivety is always the best starting guide. So I, I decided I do everything completely different. And I came up with this fantastic theory of the audiovisual counterpoint. And I thought, what I'm going to do is the opposite. I have a sonic event, and then there's a space and time, and then there's a visual event, and there's a sonic event. So you got this kind of visual sonic groove um, mm -hmm. going on. And if you explain this to someone, this sounds completely convincing and awesome. Uh, I do it different than anyone else. Uh, I have this, this fantastic counterpoint going on there. Uh, and then you try it, and you understand that the human brain is just not working like this. Because um, the human brain 
since sound travels so slow, there's a gigantic latency between the sound and the visual. Um, if you are 50, if you are 20 meters away from the screen, the sound arrives 60 milliseconds after the image, mm. uh, and the brain doesn't even notice. So the mean thing is, um, I experimented with this audiovisual counterpoint, and either the brain says, "No, no, it's perfectly in sync," <laughs> or the brain says, it's, it's, "It's not in sync at all." But mm. the idea of having an audiovisual groove is just not working. Mm. So very early on when I was working on that, I had to bury this really nice idea on paper because human perception is just against it. <laughs> and I ended up doing this hardcore swing of sound and visual as everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you deserve uh, the credit for trying, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, part, of, part of artistic exploration is at some point you also have to understand if you do things wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the journey. Well, the thing is also the brain always looks for patterns. So even if they're not there intentionally, uh, people will will claim to see them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Susanna, you told me you are, were doing also doing multi-channel uh, performances. Yeah. Yeah. Like what or 5.1? or even? No, ne never 5.1. Uh, it depends what is possible. So there, many times there are just limitations uh, by the venue or the promoter. So like the minimum would be a quackophonic setup with uh, four sound sources in the corner of the room. Um, but I, I also experimented with like very different uh, setups that are not really surround sound with four to eight speakers. But uh, I, I did work for a theater piece years ago where I had like speakers um, mounted on the ceiling in different heights, so it would form some like some sort of a. a Funnel, a three-dimensional funnel, and I, I would let like noises, you know, fall from the ceiling to the floor, and uh, try experimental stuff like this, and, nice. and it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, uh, and I recently had in October uh, there was a premiere of uh, the AV live show of for my album that came out in March, but <laughs> like all the shows were of course canceled uh, then. And I could play on the ambisonic system. So I, I, whenever I get the chance, I, I try to like throw myself into new adventures and try out new technical formats. And uh, the great thing about ambisonics is that I can define uh, where my sound sources are without moving any speakers because there's a stone of speakers and uh, like the, the, the position where the sound comes from is calculated by a software. And uh, yeah, that worked out pretty fine. And um, yeah, I, I recently could invest in a like surround sound setup here at home so I can I can set up maximum uh, eight speakers and finally test the, the, the compositions or the music I prepare for surround sound uh, here at home as well. 
Okay. Would you would you before go in blindly or without uh, without? Yeah. Oh, so you I you made the decision. You made yeah. the decisions with uh, uh, <laughs> trusting that it would come. Out. Okay. Yes. Yes. I was imagining. <laughs> yeah. And I was figuring, and then of course I did sound check, and uh, like with the ambisonic system, it was perfect because there was a very nice crew, and I arrived the day before, and I had four hours to adapt to to that ambisonic system, and the next day before the concert, I had another one and a half hour sound check, so that made it really possible to to adjust where I was like just mistakenly preparing something in, in, a, in a not ideal way. And, uh, yeah. So is then wow. during performances yeah. like that, is the, <laughs> uh, making decisions about where a sound is in the space, is that part of the performance or are you moving stuff around live or is that part of the improvisation or are you basically uh, performing music with uh, spatial information already yes. fixed. Yes, I, I prepare all the, the movements or the spatial information. I find it quite interesting like the, that there are these two basic options in, in immersive sound or in surround sound or spatial sound. One is, is like the creation of spaces in, in your perception that maybe I'm not really there. So like the immersion in, in hyper real spaces. And the other one is the localization of sounds. So some sounds might move or appear here once and over there another time. And uh, I try to combine these factors and that's actually part of these decisions are part of the composition. So uh, this is done beforehand. And I also, for some songs, I'd like to work with some uh, random um, movements or positioning of, of single sounds. Uh, so, yeah, um, but I don't move, I don't have enough hands, so uh, I don't <laughs> use another pair of hands just to, to move like, I don't know, uh, a cowbell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I did a, a surround sound project and I toured with it uh, as well. And uh, you find out very quickly that the, the the moving stuff from one spot to the other is uh, once you've done it once or heard it once even <laughs> yeah. late after that it becomes a gimmick, you know. Yeah. So so um, I I thought. Um, I, I really love doing it, but um, what I found slightly frustrating is that if you are using multi-channel sound, uh, you always have to to uh, uh, yeah uh, accept basically that there is a sweet spot, and not everybody has the same experience. Yeah. It's true for stereo as well, of course, but um, it is it is a you know an extreme form with uh, surround sound yeah. because everything. Yeah. If you if you're in the wrong place, everything completely falls apart, or have a completely different yeah. impact and experience for the people who are um, at various uh, locations. Uh, how, how, have you, how have you and dealt with that, and or how do you prevent from your music to be misinterpreted? Um, um, I I can't 
prevent that, but I put myself in the sweet spot, preferably, <laughs> and enjoy the show. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only person who's ever really heard uh, the full experience is you. Is you. <laughs> uh, but usually the sweet spot is not that small. So, no, it's And, and ideally, people can move around, and that makes it also interesting. So yeah. that, that yeah, they can, have, can, make, can make experience. Make, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other, the other thing that is uh, something that you uh, that can spoil things is that the definition of the space becomes um, less pronounced because it's mixing with the actual space, like the acoustics mm -hmm. of the room. So yeah. uh, it's like, uh, yeah, two spaces competing for space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's true, but it can still be uh, fun. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, it, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, you know, mentioning the things that I run into when when I was doing true. this. Yes, uh, absolutely. those are the challenges, basically. Yeah. And this is why soundtracks need to be longer uh, than than the usual, I don't know, 30 minutes that mm -hmm. you might get otherwise. So the longer you can adapt. To the actual space, the better it will turn out. Yeah. Mm. Jamaica, do you have any experience with multi-channel audio, or have the wish to do so sometime? Um, I, uh, when I went to school for um, audio engineering and post-production, I had a few classes in mixing in five one, and that was pretty exciting. Um, My school was in San Francisco, and uh, the teachers were actively working in the video game industry. So for some of our classes, um, we had to mix in 5.1 for uh, Halo's Waypoint 3 uh, video game. And I found it really fascinating. I, I really enjoy mixing. Um, we used a joystick to pan everything in the specific spots. And that actually leads me to my question um, for you. Uh, for you, Yoakam and Susanna, when you're preparing a show in surround sound, do you um, prepare it while you're looking at the visuals that you're going to present in the show? Or is it just like music based? Uh, do you want to go first, uh, Suzanne? Oh, no, go ahead. It's, that's fine. I can't go. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. still thinking about it. <laughs> okay, then I go first. Um, <laughs> I always think, you know, the visuals that I have for my AV shows, they are uh, very abstract. So it's mostly colors. And what I'm, I would ideally at some point try to achieve is, is like a, a space of colors. So I would love to have surround projections as well. That would be, that would be optimal uh, for, for the kind of, of visuals that that I have in mind or that I make um, but I usually like the, the musical part is definitely the priority and uh, that is where my focus is and this is also what I what I play live and where I articulate I don't articulate really the the visuals because yeah it I would need the second person probably to do that mm. if that was necessary. Yeah. Pro projection. Projection next to your surround sound system at home. <laughs> yeah. <The> next step. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you can <laughs> never leave the leave that space again. You know, if you if you go to a prediction and and a five point one system, <laughs> that's hours of fun. Um, I, I was thinking, yeah, I I did it in two kinds of ways. Um, I did a five point one DVD project with uh, uh, together with a, a visual artist from from LA, uh, Scott Pagano, and uh, that was basically uh, I did the the audio and and he. Uh, made uh, I gave him the stems and he made video. So basically, it's a it's a film. It's a linear piece, you know. And we did screenings for that for those. So we, you know, everywhere we screened it, it there was a five point one system, and people were just looking at a screen, you know, very simple. And the other way I did it was with uh, uh, another uh, video crew, uh, and that show was basically improvised from from start to finish, both both the video and. Uh, uh, the audio. I just had one uh, massive reactor patch with that did 5.1 stuff, and I could control it uh, live. Uh, and and that you know basically how you would um, work with a modular. You know, just just press start with a beginning setting, and then you just explore the range of what it can do. And the same was true for for video. So they never really were in existence. Um, each show was improvised, and each was one was unique, um, and uh, that was, uh, yeah. So it, it wasn't rehearsed, you know. It was just uh, okay. What's the range of this uh, setup? What can we do with it? And let's just press go and uh, see where we end up. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, the aesthetics were they were known beforehand, right? So you you can you can. It's similar, I guess, to playing in a jazz uh, group. You know, you say one person has the job to do the bass, one does does to the drums, and you say, okay, this is the tempo, this is the key, let's see where we go. You know, yeah. and um, so so yeah, the basic things, the basic starting points were there. Like we knew the the kind of the range of the vocabulary, what we could work with, and uh, and that would all. Uh, happen you know everything would would uh, would happen in somewhere in the show uh but never in a predictable way or or um in a time where you know there's no timeline going or anything it was just a um yeah series of noodling noodlings <laughs> <laughs> how yeah. did this work out i mean were you satisfied with the results um well other than the things that that i uh ran into like the acoustics and the lack of a mm -hmm. sweet spot i mean it by the the last show we had to come up with an idea to build the stage over the audience so both the audience and um, us were in the sweet spot which worked out quite well uh, but in terms of um, uh, content yeah it's uh, it's like with every other improvisation you know it's it's sort of unknown territory until you start playing Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really like. Mm -hmm. I feel really comfortable in that in that situation. You know, I I I I'm totally fine with not knowing what's going to happen and uh, having to come up with uh, shit on the fly. You know, it's fine. I love it. <laughs> Actually, I prefer it more than than uh, uh, DJing, which is kind of uh, um, it's a craft, you know. But it's um, uh, there's slightly less freedom uh, in it. Uh, uh so yeah the total improvisation with hardware is something that i uh i enjoy the most uh -huh. yeah cool and how how are you syncing screens or syncing hardware 
when you're uh, performing live with different guests on your other show? Oh, that's uh, that we use a different system every week. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> there are so many options, you know, and it's really not that hard. Uh, anyway, that, but the, it, it is a transparent technology because it's, uh, it feels like being in the same room. Uh, I've recently started doing this and I've done, a, uh, I think, four or five now. Uh, and um, yeah, once you get the system set up, um, it is basically you hear the music of just coming from your monitor speakers, like like you would if if you would be in the same in the same room. Um, so do you have a lot of latency? Uh, no, that is dealt with. That is that is there. Okay. That's part of the the system. Uh, there's mm -hmm. no latency, uh, but um, uh, yeah, it's just a. Uh, like, like like with everything else, the only thing is that you are not getting the visual cues from the other person because if you are collaborating, even though you're not staring at each other all the time, usually when you're on the stage, you 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 still oh. feel the energy of the other person and the body language and stuff like that, you know, and that's something you don't have now. Um, but it's surprisingly natural. <laughs> and it's fun because uh, it, it's like this, you know, we, we are connecting like this today and having a talk. And uh, this way, it's connecting with musicians who are now not physically capable of reaching this location. So it's a it's a really nice way of uh, of jamming with with uh, any potential collaborator at any potential spot on on the planet. You know, which is great. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, we are already talking for almost two hours, people. <laughs> <laughs> Time goes fast when you're having fun. Uh, yeah. Usually we do. Uh, I don't want to break this uh, conversation, but usually we do the last few minutes of the of the chat. Uh, give uh, the opportunity to each guest to, uh, to plug their stuff, like new projects they're working on or anything you want the audience to know about. So how about we start with um, Susanna? You want to plug something or make people aware? Oh, uh, you know what? It's I have a, a really big project uh, ahead of me that I cannot really talk about yet because uh, there is not even a title and I have to finish it by the end of January so uh, I need to work intensively on that uh, new composition it will be 30 minutes of completely new music and uh, yeah um, other than that I could I, could I mention something else? Well, where can um, people find your music, or um, hmm? do you have a Bandcamp page or something like that? Where can people find your music? Why they oh, should? yes, I have a Bandcamp page. There's not too much on it, it's, but uh, there there are my two albums. Um, it's electricindigo.bandcamp.com, and uh, there is uh, the album I released on Robert's label uh, in 2018 and the other album, Ferrum, which came out this year uh, on Editions Mabel. And uh, yeah, and I have a website and all this kind of stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Cool. Uh, Jamaica, anything you want to share? Um, recently, four records came out on my label, Gradient. And Susanna contributed an amazing track to this compilation. <laughs> thank you, by the way. And thank so, you, yeah, thank you for being on board. 
Um, so it's uh, with um, 17 tracks and 16 artists, and it was released um, in staggered releases between fall and winter. So the last record just came out, but um, I um, did a DJ mix of all of the tracks, uh, about a 60 minute mix, and collaborated with a film director um, from Switzerland. His name is Anthony Bordeaux, and there's also an actress and an actor in this film. And we kind of bounced ideas off of each other during, um, during the whole process of finalizing the compilation and, um, um, and everything. And that will be released early next year. Cool. Fantastic. Looking forward. Sounds great. <laughs> uh, Robert, anything? Well, I mean, I, I just released this, this album, which I'm quite happy with uh, because it feels like a bit of a personal liberation to me. I, uh, I just did what I really wanted to do without being too much concerned about who will receive it in which way. And the lockdown situation basically made it possible for me to, instead of being on tour, uh, just tweaking a lot of details. And that helped me a lot. And yeah, so uh, the, the best thing to know about my work is my website, because I'm curating this site, roberthenke.com, since uh, almost 25 years now. And I put a lot of effort in it. And yeah, everything you would like to know about my work and my nerdiness, uh, there's a place for it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, well, uh, let's check out, let everybody have your, check out your website um, uh, and, and the album, I must say. Have a listen to the album. It's, 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 it's great. Um, so, yeah, um, thanks for hanging out, guys. Really good seeing you. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. Um, yeah. yeah, it was um, absolutely nice to uh, to chat uh, and and get nerdy about things. <laughs> yes, um, I must so say. Uh, oh, sorry. Go go for it. No, no I was going to last mention uh, about uh, our Discord server. We've set up this uh, really nice Discord server with. Uh, uh, um, a bunch of uh, an optical is there. Um, I mean, the people ask questions here in the in, in YouTube, but uh, or on Twitch, but we very rarely answer them. <laughs> so on the server, we we all hang out as well, and mm -hmm. uh, um, it's a really nice place hanging out. People sharing their music and their ideas, and uh, get technical about uh, modules, synths, drum machines, whatever. So it's a really nice source of information outside of this uh, this chat. Uh, the link should be in the description of the video, so um, check it out. And um, that's pretty much it for this for this week. What I want to plug: the store hoodies have uh, stopped. Uh, uh, the order is uh, stopped, so we're going to send everything off uh, this week, and uh, people should get them very soon. Um, yeah. Other than that, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks again. Um, Lovely being here. Nice series. Yeah. Okay, good to meet you. Ciao, ciao. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.